their favorite thing in the world is basically to say, we got something for nothing, or look at the deal we got. And, and when you have something that goes viral, or you have people like standing outside in line to buy, you know, a relatively standard mass-produced item, and you get to rub your hands together at, at how much they want you, it makes them feel great. These are image brands. They want to feel wanted. That's when they're at their best. It's that image and perception, that I, I'm wanted factor. That's the currency that they work with. On this week's show, Ariel, Rick and David talk all things watch shows and gimmicky watch collaborations. They play Guess the Price of the Seiko while talking about who had the best and worst year in the watch world and review the latest from Moser, two watches from Chopar and two from Seiko. And you can also follow us on Twitter, don't you know? Because we had all forgotten. Enjoy the show, and happy Christmas. Greetings and welcome to a Vlog to Watch Weekly. Ariel and David are both here. And what many of you may not realise is that a Vlog to Watch has a Twitter account, which you wow. should go and check out and follow. And actually, on that Twitter account, we are also running a poll as to whether Ariel should step down as being in charge of a blog to watch so current nominees are david and myself obviously to take over so if you want to go and follow the a blog to watch twitter account then you should do that and take part in the poll ariel do you think you survive the public vote um i'm still actually remembering that we have a twitter account <laughs> i remember we had these long discussions we're like we're on twitter now what we should just sell the account for 44 billion <laughs> if somebody would like to make an offer for the blog to watch twitter account then go right ahead this does lead on to some news this week which we'll cover later on in, in good week bad week or good year bad year twitter is actually a place where there genuinely is a watch community it is small and it is niche but we are out there I think of our 36,000 followers, we occasionally get a like from a tweet, which just shows you the percentage of engagement that Twitter still has in comparison to the likes of Instagram. So yeah, Instagram is where we go. We normally give the Instagram accounts at the end of the show, but why don't we change it up a bit and give them at the beginning? David is still carrying on. You're not giving up your underscore for Christmas, David? No, not for, not for Christmas. Maybe for Easter. Maybe for Easter. <laughs> so give us your Instagram account. Uh, it's abtw underscore David. And Ariel, where can people find you? Ariel to watch. There we go. And I'm at Rick TikTok. So yes, go and check out those Instagram accounts. That saves us having to do at the end when we've run out of time. Dubai Watch Week has announced its dates for 2023. What are we more excited about? Dubai Watch Week, Watches and Wonders, any other show that we experienced in the last year that we're hoping to repeat? Well, you know, it's funny that you mention this because one of the things that has not resolved yet is the routine of going to these events. And that's sort of, sort of strange for us. We can't actually plan for a lot of these because we're not always sure how we'll get there, <laughs> if we're even invited sometimes. And we tend to be invited, <laughs> which is great. But that's one of the parts of the experience for us where a lot of the stress comes from like, how much time are we going to be there? How many of us are going to be able to go? And that's part of the experience that media is having right now at this juncture in the watch industry where there's still a lot of things being figured out, media is is among the more fragile things. So while these events are set up to hopefully have as much media as possible, there's still that not that much out there. And I truly hope these events, as they have in the past, of course, made it as easy as possible. Dubai Watch Week, for example, when they want us out there, they certainly do a good job of it and we like going out there. But we can't anticipate it because, you know, there's always a chance that you don't get an invitation. So that's a, a, an interesting and weird part of the experience so far. And so we're back in November 2023 and Watches and Wonders will be coming around quicker than we probably expect. Time does seem to be flying. Do we think that Watch and Wonders will step up its game even further this year, David? What was your experience last year? It was my first big event. What did you think of it as a as a veteran? Yeah, I think it was great. I, I miss it already. I'm really looking forward to to the next installment and and to be out there with you guys. It's turning into this monster event uh, with Baselward gone and most of the you know high gravitas brands like Rolex, Patek, etc. merging into Watches and Wonders. So I think it, there's this huge potential. It's the place to be. I'm just happy that these things still exist in the world where we see new watch releases every month, basically from the big brands. So it's not like what it used to be like eight or ten years ago where it was Baselward and then mostly quiet for the rest of the year, maybe like one or two launches. Most big brands have a full roadmap for the entire year, basically, right? So there's maybe 
maybe two months when when they are not launching a new product or a new model variation and then then it's all novelties basically yeah it does seem to be a bit more of an onslaught month to month especially if you're a brand like seiko which we'll come on to shortly arrow is your observation that there is just more launches in general rather than doing a set amount at big shows like watches and wonders and spreading the rest around the year or is there just more product that's a very good question i think a lot of it is perception i don't think that they're producing significantly more watches than they have in the past if anything they're probably producing the same if not less but remember that in the past the strategy was okay you release i'm just saying for example 20 products but two or three of them get to be the hero products and the hero products are those that get the media attention but then media and marketers started giving the feedback, including a blog to watch constantly, where we would say to brands like, okay, look, only the watches that get talked about sell. And so you have all these watches that, that no one is discussing. And as a result of that, they're not getting the attention. You need to advertise them. So they interpreted that as let's make a big deal out of every single SKU we have. And that'll give us the opportunity to spend even less on advertising. And I think what's very interesting in a way of sort of proving this is that off times of the year, like national holidays or at the very end of the year, there are certain brands that are trying to squeeze out like one little extra uh, watch release or something like that. These are the brands that like on Christmas Eve are like, hey, we have a new dial in blue. And those also end up being the brands that end up spending the least annually on advertising across the board, right? So you uh -huh. know for a fact the brands believe that by releasing a watch as news, that satisfies like a marketing checkbox. Like, oh, oh, we're advertising it. And you can so you can see them specifically doing a strategy. And what they seem to be doing is thinking, oh, well, our secret weapon will be releasing something when all the other you know brands are on vacation or not paying attention. Uh, but then you end up having like five desperate brands all on Christmas Day releasing mediocre <laughs> watches. And, and I think that... You know, maybe hmm. we'll not see that on Christmas Day, but I think that we'll see more and more of it. And there are going to be those brands that try to sneak that in. And they're also more often than not going to be the brands that don't spend money in marketing. Well, Christmas is a Sunday this year, so maybe it'll be this Friday coming instead. Let's talk about some of the Monday articles and in particular linking two together because Arrow, you weren't with us last week and you did an article on how the luxury watch industry can do well despite global economic recession. But this week was also from Jake. Is anyone listening why we are seeing so many watch brand collaborations? And I suspect these two stories are ever so slightly linked that big major brands are leaning on the collaboration in order to move stock even more so during a recession. But let's start off with the watch brand collaborations. David, in your opinion, what drives the watch brand collaboration? Is it the public? Is it the retailers? Or is it the brands themselves? Whose fault is it that we have all these collaborations? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's funny you ask me. I, I don't mind these collaborations that much. I think they, these lead to exciting products. I feel like uh, brands sometimes, well, actually, most of the time are so closed up in their own little world. And it, it takes some external impulse of, of sorts, you know, to blast them through these thick walls that they have in terms of design, functionality, following their own codes, etc. So... I think these collaborations are really great. I, it's not that I like all of them, but I feel like whenever there's a collab, I look at it and as long as it's not just a name printed on the dial, I'm, I'm already excited. So I think it's coming from the public to answer your question, not from uh, from somewhere else. Mainly people just like it. I mean, if I can own two brands in one product in today's brand driven world, you know, I think people will go and, and take that opportunity. And so Ariel, what's your thoughts? Obviously this year, the big news has been the moon swatch which appears to have jumped the shark, if that's the appropriate phrase, in terms of getting actually into public consciousness. There are still queues outside some Swatch boutiques on a regular basis when the public are informed that there is new stock. What is it about the collaboration that seems to have broken through some watches more into the mind of the public? That's a very good point. And I think the Moon the moon Watch or the Moon Swatch and the other hype watches, you know, the thing that they all have in common is some type of 
interesting story that has made people talk about them online. They've, they've been attention getting watches. It's really not been about the product itself. It's been maybe about how they look, how they're priced, how they're made. And these are the gimmicks and these are the sort of special situations that brands hope that they can get done right once in a while. And we talked about this when the Moon Swatch came out and I made the point where Swatch can't just repeat this at, at will, right? This is like a once in a while thing. And my concern is that brands still believe that they can get away with just constantly doing gimmicks, right? There's only so many gimmicks you can do before you just like, you screw it up and you can't do it anymore. Like it's, it's not gonna be a win every single time. And so what bothers me is we're not talking about watches like, oh, Tudor put a lot of money marketing that watch. I really saw it everywhere. They did events, we all got to know it. And clearly we're all talking about it. Like that would be the original way or at least the traditional way of something being on our mind. We just see it everywhere. Right now they're gimmick watches and that's fine. But by definition, I don't think you can sort of create entire brand marketing roadmaps by saying, well, every quarter we're gonna get a successful gimmick and that's gonna get us a lot of attention. Like that just doesn't work. So I, there are some great gimmicks and of course it's so fun to see them and talk about them, but I don't want the industry's marketing practices built on those being successful all the time. But do you think they actually are sitting in their boardrooms going, right, how do we repeat this? Yes, of course they are. <laughs> this 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 is fantastic. This this isn't expensive for them usually, at least in comparison to things. It's like gambling, so they love playing the game. It strokes their ego. Their favorite thing in the world is basically to say, we got something for nothing, or look at the deal we got. And, and when you have something that goes viral, or you have people like, you know, standing outside in line to buy, you know, a relatively, you know, standard mass produced item and you get to rub your hands together at, at how much they want you. It, it makes them feel great. Th these these are image brands. They want to feel wanted. That's when they're at their best. It's not even about the amount of money they take home at the end of the day. Very few people at the brand are even incentivized by sales overall. It's that image and perception that I, I'm wanted factor, that's the currency that they work with. I suppose it's daft asking this question because if we knew the answer, we probably wouldn't be doing this for a living. But what is the secret sauce that tips something over the edge from being just something that we're into as watch geeks to something that just gets public conscious? Is there a formula or is it just dumb luck? Well, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the real short answer is that Yes, there's a formula, but it's impossible to tell what that formula is. So you have to keep trying and trying and trying until you hit it accidentally. And when you when you analyze the success, of course, you can look at certain things that that why it made sense and you can understand it, but it's very difficult to anticipate it. It does have to be a good product. It does need to be something people want, but it also needs to sort of tie into other current events and things like that. It's very much like trying to hit a moving target that's going at like, you know, Mach 2. Tie this into the, the article you wrote uh, a few days ago about how the luxury watch industry is responding to an economic recession. What part does limited editions, which we've spoken about in the past, and collaborations have in supporting an industry that is certainly moving into a headwind economically, if nothing else? Well, the point of the article was to talk about how certain types of buyer psychology can make it so that the watch industry is not immune, but isn't really too negatively affected you know, in sort of a recession economic environment and how watches as different types of status symbols and, and how they can make, you know, enthusiasts and collectors happy. And a lot of different factors can mean that the industry can do quite well despite an economic recession. We're, we're talking about the psychology a little bit about why people buy and if that has an effect in a recession. And, and it does. But I think that a lot of these, the psychology is recession proof. The idea that you want something that other people have that you can't have has really nothing to do with recession. If you can't afford it, you can't afford it, but you're still gonna want it. So I think the luxury industry is professional at playing games with desire, at flirting with the consumer, making them feel like they, they, they need something they don't have, that by owning it, they'll feel better, they'll be better. And all of this are variations on that game. And as consumers sort of have a very nuanced dance with that game. We have to play part of it, we are buying into it because we do desire these things and we get genuinely happy when we wear them, but we can't get carried away and we can't let the brands define all the terms. So I think it's very important to ask yourself, is this brand playing a game to get me excited about buying? Like actually putting the term limited edition on a watch is tantamount to calling it a collector's item, which is basically just sort of like waving in front of the consumer like, I bet you're gonna want one of these. Like, don't do that. You know what I mean? Don't remind us that you're toying with us. 
You know what I mean? I don't want to see the string connected to the toy, right? I just want to see the thing dangling. I don't want to know that someone's actually toying with me. And I think that we've come to the era of being just impolite, right? Like the consumer just knows they're being toyed with and hates it, right? And the <laughs> idea of going to like a Rolex store and being able to see nothing and just being told you're not allowed to buy one. I mean, this is like the epitome uh, of this game being played. I mean, if you would have told certain marketers 30 years ago that at some point you go to a store and that people would be paying these, these lavish rents for these wonderful showrooms where you can't buy anything for, for months and months and years, they'd be like, what are you, insane? But like that's actually what's happening right now. And it's preposterous yeah. and silly and weird and absurd. And we're allowed to say it is. Interestingly, just as you touch on Rolex there, I had heard at the end, uh, well, I'll not tell you who this came from, so it might need to be checked out. But And so if you've actually bought one of these certified pre-owned, perhaps you can tell that actually the certified pre-owned watches are not being sold in the green boxes. They are being sold in the Rolex white or the fawn boxes that is the new color scheme of Rolex certified pre-owned. So there you go. There's a, a little takeaway. Well, there's a very good reason for that because the, the, the boxes themselves have have value and what they don't want people doing is taking them and swapping them with another watch and saying it's new and blah, 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 because those boxes are bought and sold on the black market. So there is now a stock of green boxes sitting at the back door of your local Rolex boutique yeah. every time they buy in one for their certified pre-owned scheme. But I think it speaks to the fact that Rolex are getting into this to dominate the market. They're not just getting into this likely just because they had to or they were forced to. They've thought about this and this is a strategic play, as you point out, Ariel. David, somebody had commented on the chat on this particular article that one thing they observed, this is from a contributor called PR, was the chest-thumping, snarky, we-can't-keep-the-watches- on our shelves attitude appears to have gone from the 80s and that the 80s are having to work for a living in terms of selling some brands of watches. Is there an obvious, okay, we know that Rolex will sell whatever they get in, but is this really going to separate out the brands that over the last few years really have built their brand versus those that were just riding the hype? And when the hype dies down, it's Emperor's New Clothes have not actually got anything that anybody really wants when they have to think about it. Yeah, that's a question that is often asked. Like, why does not Rolex raise its prices even more? Or, or why doesn't it just make more watches or something like that? And for the record, Rolex has increase its prices substantially over the last five or six years you know sometimes they increase it twice and and that's because you know it's a hyped product but you can't always meet the hype you can't operate like Ariel said on gimmicks and you can't operate on hype for too long you know or maybe you can you can sail on it maybe you can extend that for like five years or ten years or whatever like AP has done but sometimes what what happens at that time is that you know, the, the, these companies can't always just recreate this hype feeling. By nature, hype just comes and goes. And what's left is basically just a, you know, a, a hollow thing. Like, just it's, it's just a name. And how many, how often can you sell Supreme on a, on a shirt or a bag or something like that? You know, it's just, it's gone. On the note of, of Rolex, I just wanted to say, I just finished writing up the hands-on of the Deep Sea Challenge, the titanium one that's 50 millimeters and <laughs> okay. twice as thick as a Daytona. You didn't break your arm then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And I actually wore it over a jacket uh, sleeve. <laughs> and the point of the article is not just that, but also to see how Rolex works with titanium. That was what I was really uh, excited to see and discover. And frankly, it's, I think it's fair to say it's a critical look. So uh, I hope people will look forward to reading that article. It's going to be different than what's out there saying that it's big and it's very water resistant yes we all know that but the question is you know what's the future look like for titanium uh, rolexes and and for now you know spoiler alert i can say that there's still a long way to go but last week's show this week so andrew from watchfinder on last week's show said this the moser on the other hand god those guys just can't do anything wrong can they they are so good we now have some audio from Sean, who wrote about a certain other Moser. Have a listen. Hey everyone, Sean Lorenzen here to talk about the new H Moser Endeavor Center Seconds Genesis Limited Edition. Anyone who's familiar with the watch industry who's been here for a while knows that H Moser tends to do things a little bit adventurously on the design side, a little bit tongue-in-cheek a lot of the time, and this is no different. This is Moser's opportunity to capture the Web 3.0 market and create a watch that combines a physical timepiece with 
digital authentication on the blockchain. The first thing that jumps out at you looking at this is the engraved crystal, which features a QR code. Wearers can scan that QR code, which takes them to the authentication paperwork on that particular watch. Moser has continued this digital theme through a blocky 3D printed titanium bezel and matching crown, very unique look. On top of that, buyers will have exclusive access to H. Moser online content with brand executives, exclusive experiences. They're also including a bespoke NFT with each watch, although it's, it's a difficult time for the NFT market. Only 50 of these will be made. This is something that you guys are interested in. Is this a misstep from Moser? Obviously, with everything going on in the NFT and Web 3.0 world, it's a difficult time to be launching this. But is this something that has a future? Let me know, guys. I don't know if this is the foot, a foot wrong. Probably not. But Timing-wise, maybe, as Sean points out, this was not quite the moment to launch a watch that involves NFTs in any way, shape, or form. Maybe it's extra Moser to be launching this Endeavor Center Seconds Genesis watch, all NFT crazed and blockchained out and all the rest of it, right when everybody's just getting deeply suspicious of everything blockchain, NFT, cryptocurrency, the whole lot. So maybe it's just even more of a Moser move to do it now. But what do we think of this watch? I have to admire Sean for trying to describe it on his audio because it's pretty undescribable. You need to go and look at the pictures on the article. So gentlemen, what do we think? It's an art watch. And what you're doing is you're taking an aesthetic and you're making art out of it. And this aesthetic is something that started to pop up in our lives. And this is the... Uh, the QR code, and from a visual perspective, it is a new thing. You know, the barcode, for example, is, is a type of code that people grow up with, and the barcode has taken on aesthetic form. It has been used decoratively here and there when it started as being nothing sexy at all. And this particular aesthetic of the watch tries to recreate this in three-dimensional form. It is a sort of artistic, heady product, and it's trying to say this shape, which is purely technological and about, you know, data, how does it look as a form, as fashion, as an object of beauty? And that's what this object is, is asking that question. And people appreciate that the question is being asked and that everyone can come to their own opinion. I don't think that anyone is arguing that's objectively beautiful, but it's definitely intriguing. And again, in the sort of world of modern art and things like that, this is almost form formulaic in its depiction of how you know many other types of objects have been made. So I, I think it's clever in that regard. I don't think that it's sort of like, you know, everyone's going to agree this is the new beauty. There's going to be other things copying this. But again, as being sort of the high-end provocateurs of the imagination that Moser is, this is them just doing their thing. Yeah, I think the cool thing about this, and I, I feel like we really should have reserved speaking about this watch until Sylvan was next on the show because every time he's on, we end up talking about titanium. This watch is 3D printed titanium in order to get the shapes rather than it being milled or some other method. Do we know anything? thing about how you 3d print titanium david do we have a clue how this is done i thought part of what sylvan said about titanium is actually the milling process gives it its its strength mm. so yeah will this have the qualities of what we expect the titanium watch will have being 3d printed the question is if is whether we expect that sort of strength and durability from an art product i mean it's an artsy thing mm -hmm. it looks like it's a it's a larp thing and not something you would go and, and hike with or, or dive it or whatever else it's just they are happy they could make it look like this and wow it looks like that that's great is it titanium whatever it just happened to be titanium but it's not the, the next great solution for durable titanium products i will go and check this out go and read sean's article i do like it i have to say i'm not sure i like it to the tune of twenty-seven thousand pounds worth or twenty-seven thousand swiss francs but i suppose if i had that rattling around in the bank somewhere then this is certainly going to be something different and it's going to get your attention it does look like more the sort of watch you would wear if you were playing minecraft than anything else that's probably how i would describe it also last week we touched on credor and the guess the price of the latest Seiko it was £400,000 worth so the guess from Andrew was 150000 was somewhat out but we do have two other Seikos for review this week so here are the authors of both of those reviews to give you the lowdown on the Seikos they wanted to talk about 
Hey everybody, Sean Lorenzen here to talk about the Seiko Watchmaking 110th Anniversary Prospect Save the Ocean Limited Edition SPB333. Seiko's got a penchant for long names and this is no different. This is part of Seiko's sort of advanced celebration for the 110th anniversary of their first wristwatch, the Laurel, which was also the first wristwatch ever made in Japan. Obviously, the actual anniversary is in 2023, but the brand has taken a head start and released a handful of new limited editions for the end of 2022. This combines a lot of greatest hits from dive watches the brand has made over the past few years. For example, it has a case inspired by the Slimline 1960s Seiko 6 105-8000 with this C-case design. On top of that, you have the Save the Ocean dial, which mimics the look of Arctic or Antarctic sea ice with all these silver facets that create an incredibly dynamic look in changing light. On top of that, you've got Seiko's traditional rectangular dive indices, baton handset, a stoplight seconds hand in deep blue, along with this engraved gray bezel. It's a clean, simple look, comes together with a five-link bracelet, as well as a uh, woven NATO strap. And it's the very beginning of what should be an incredible year for Seiko. What do you guys think about this one? Is this a good start to a year of celebrations? Is this preemptive? Is this premature? Let me know. Hey everyone, Ripley Sellers here. To celebrate the 110th anniversary of its very first wristwatch, which also happens to be the very first wristwatch made in Japan, Seiko has unveiled the Seiko Watchmaking 110th Anniversary Seiko Presage Limited Edition SPB359. Now, this isn't the first time that Seiko has created a watch that drew inspiration from the original 1913 Laurel. However, this is the first time that it's been recreated in such exacting detail. That said, it is a modern version of the original watch, so you get a larger case, a modern construction, modern materials like a sapphire crystal, and of course, a power reserve indicator right there at nine o'clock. So my question is for you, what do you think of this new Seiko Presage that pays tribute to the very first Seiko wristwatch? And is this your favorite one that's kind of played on this design concept, or do you like one of the previous iterations better? So we have two sequels then, a traditional dive watch reviewed by Sean, and that is the Prospect Save the Ocean Limited Edition SPB333, because Seiko likes nothing if not a nice simple name, and another monster name, the Seiko Presage 110th Anniversary Limited Edition SPB359 watch. Okay, we'll play our game, two Seikos. They are both cheaper than the Creedor from last week. Good to know. But given... Which isn't saying much. I should maybe ask you this in terms of how many of these could you buy for the Creedor, but I've not done the maths, so not worry about that. So you've got the SPB333, which is the dive watch. Ariel, have a guess. Um, So I like going into this knowing very little about this watch. So like, do you give me a hint? Is it like a, you can say a few things? Like, how does this work? It's a limited edition. There's 5,000 of them. So yeah, a limited edition. Yeah, get a grip, guys. 5,000 limited edition. But what collection is it? Because just, just knowing, because again, like I don't, when I, when you hear the, the, the letters and numbers, like that tells me ne nearly okay, nothing. Okay, so this is the Seiko 110th uh -huh. anniversary, limited edition, Prospect, save the ocean so dive watch crown at 4 30. Mm, and it's got it's got one of those anniversaries in there is it a good anniversary or is it a useless anniversary what anniversary it is an anniversary we all look forward to celebrating the 110th anniversary of something of what they're not 110 years old are they maybe they are is it is it their 110th anniversary i can one can oh, only assume it's their watch maybe it's, is that when seikosha started or something like that because i'm like I don't think any of their dive watches are 110 years old. It's the first wristwatch that was produced in 1913 of Seiko and, and you know, okay. by in Japan. Yeah. Okay. All so right. So you've got a celebratory dive watch to celebrate mm. the 110th anniversary. With an ice dial. I'm going to go, uh, I don't know. Jeez. 1500 bucks. <laughs> okay. We have 1500 from Ariel. David, what do we have from you? Yeah. Two grand. Two grand. Okay, now we get to play higher or lower. So the alternative is a Seiko Presage, also celebrating the 110th anniversary, looking a bit more like the original watch that okay. it is actually celebrating. Have a guess. Is this higher or lower than the previous dive I, I, watch? I'm going to go with higher. Okay. David, higher or lower than the diver? 
<sighs> it looks like it has a special dial. You know, presages have these enamel and lacquer dials, and this one definitely looks like enamel. So I will say $1,500. Okay, you're both not too shabby. So the Seiko Dive Watch is $1,300. Okay. So you're both a bit high. I was pretty close. It's not bad, but the Presage is indeed more expensive, but not a lot more expensive at $1,800. So both actually reasonably sensibly priced. I don't think anything there is making you go, huh? I feel like the last watch that Seiko made that kind of looked like this Presage was like three grand, and I don't remember why. Nobody does. <laughs> they were nice, but they were not three grand nice. So here we have two Seikos. Go read the articles about them both. But obviously this is celebrating, as David has pointed out, the 110th anniversary of the first wristwatch that Seiko produced. Where do we think Seiko are headed? Is it still a little bit confusing? They really want to be Omega. Why? Well, Grand Seiko really does. Both. Why? Well, I don't know, but that that... That's where they're trying to go. Which is what? Having 1,500 SKUs and prices all over the place? <laughs> Surely they've already got yeah. more than that already. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's a good question. I feel like Casio, I more or less understand where they're going. Citizen, I have a, a pretty good idea. But with Seiko, it's anyone's guess. Like, we all love Seiko, Grand Seiko. They're great stuff. But pricing has been like, I don't know, a hurricane. And they're clearly releasing watches as a rate that is so high, it's not going to be sustainable. Like nobody, the retailers, the press, uh, the retail, everybody is saying to them, like, guys, slow down. Like everyone's going crazy. So like we know what they're doing right now can't last that much longer. I believe that they're going to be trying to resolve at a higher price point or price range than they did maybe five or 10 years ago. And that's because the brand is decreasing its its production. Uh, what they're really going to have to do is start pumping a lot of money behind the brand name. They want to be that Omega or they want to be that sort of luxury brand that's not like mass production brand, but luxury brand. They got to put huge, huge money behind building up what the Seiko name means. And I don't, they're, they're not doing any of that right now. I'm curious as to when the Omega deal runs out with James Bond. Because Bond did wear a Seiko, at least for, I want to say two movies, but at least for one movie. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think Seiko now need to pick, pick something in Europe or America marketing-wise and throw a load of money at it to get uh. the brand recognition. I would suspect that Seiko, if you looked at their average price of all brands is probably the brand that's increased its average selling price the most in the last five years. It wouldn't surprise, I've not seen any announcement, but it would not surprise me if the average Seiko SKU is now double what it was in terms of the, sure. the number of produced of what it was five to 10 years ago. So I think it would be really interesting to see them pick a sport. Because do they have brand ambassadors? I can't, if they do, they're not doing a very good job because I can't think of who they are. They have, they have. Right now, nothing comes to mind. They have, you know, a lot of collaborations they've done, but it's no secret that they haven't been exactly prolific in marketing lately. I mean, Seiko has such a, such a long way to go still. I mean, they don't even have a proper press website or a news website. So let's just start with the basics. Let's uh, James I, wonder, Bond. I wonder how long it would take David to get back to this. <laughs> the, their images you... are rubbish. Stop sending us small JPEGs for I press images. It. It's so <laughs> unbelievably useless. It's, it's ridiculous, really. It's an affront. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's it's really true and I, I as much as i respect seiko for its engineering and and for its history i don't think seiko has what it takes to become a bond watch at all they i, I don't think i don't think it, it's even on the table I, nobody at seiko wakes up one morning thinking like oh i wish we were a bond bond brand nobody thinks that i that's that's at least the sense that i'm getting when i when i look at seiko today are they still as good watches as they were but now just double the price or is anything drifting in the quality? Are they cutting corners? They don't appear to be, is my observation. I don't think I've ever seen anything in the modern watches that suggest that they're cutting corners at all. Definitely, I think the quality in some ways has, has gone up, put a lot more focus on the dials, for sure. Straps have been getting a lot better. I mean, you can get 
really good watch with Seiko or any of the Japanese brands. So I, I don't think they've been slipping in any way. I think some of the some of the watches, you know, for years and years and years, they would come out with weird watches that didn't make sense, but no one's really paying attention. Now they put so much, you know, they try to they put a little try, they try to put a story behind every one of the releases. Well, not story release, and everyone's like, well, why do they do that? So I don't think there's. I think they're doing things as sort of strangely and as they've always done, at least for our Western eyes. I just think there's more optics on it right now. But again, as, as David said, and as I've said, um, there's no effort to telling the world when you think Seiko, think something like none of that's going on. Sorry, when, when people think of Seiko, they think of a quality watch for, for um, a low amount of money. Uh, and I think that's a great reputation to have. It is, but it's not a sexy thing. Like, if, let's put it to cars. Like, does the guy get the car that says that? A quality car for not a lot of money. Like, does that get the girl? No, that's never no. gotten the girl. Like, there needs to be excess exuberance, like some type of insane non-efficiency. That's what gets people <laughs> excited in the dating environment. Yeah, but that's not what sells Suzuki's or Daihatsu's, you know? So it's, it's not like, ah, oh, I'm getting the sexiest Daihatsu tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Okay. I mean, you're, you're, but you still need to get around. The Daihatsu is because at the end of the day, you need to get around. Yeah. If you just, the Daihatsu of a watch is like a smartwatch or something. Maybe, or a Psycho 5 or, or, or something like that, you know? Yeah. Just some basic thing to tell the time and not make you look like you're completely broke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Seiko doesn't make you look completely broke. That's the tagline <laughs> they're missing. <laughs> Seiko, I've got house and car keys too. <laughs> hey, is it, I mean, is this just an us problem? Is this an American and European problem? In Japan, does this all make sense? Or do we know anybody in Japan who's also saying Seiko what are you doing? I don't know. We don't know. We don't know any Japanese watch journalists. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's a homegrown brand. It's actually very common for Japanese watch journalists to have, like, no interest in Japanese watches. There's a lot of them are, like, oh, okay. just into the European ones. And they're like, oh, Japanese watches? Yeah, yeah, once in a while, once in a while. When you're really broke. <laughs> All of the Japanese watches became giant international brands because of popularity outside of, uh, of Japan. Uh -huh. Okay. Like that, yeah. all of them have this in common. So none of these brands would be as impressive as they are today if they just sold watches in their domestic market. There is a consumer in Japan that feels that they want to support a homegrown brand, sort of a nationalistic brand. It is, it is a good brand, but when you speak to them, like the amount of people that buy like the ultra high end Seikos and things like that, it's a very, very small number of people there. I think we're more impressed by high end Japanese watches are than sort of maybe the average Japanese person. Good week, bad week, but also, as it's nearly Christmas time, Merry Christmas to anyone who's listening on Christmas. You know, if you've chosen to tune into our stupid voices on Christmas Day, then maybe also you to... No, they want a, real holiday cheer. Authentic holiday cheer is what we Authentic deliver, right? Authentic holiday cheer. Oh, is yeah. that right? We're, we're, yeah. just, we're known for a cheerfulness. When people speak about this podcast, they always say just how cheerful everybody is. <laughs> uh, good year, bad year. So in the round, who has had the best calendar year in the watch world and who has had the worst my nominations have got to be moonswatch that kind of collaboration clearly took the world by storm my nomination for bad year is actually just richemont in general what is going on we hear nothing from them you compare the number of brands they own with the number of amount of media coverage they get what's going on ariel your thoughts your nominations oh wow I mean, these are such subjective things. I mean, <laughs> we know you love doing lists, Ariel. We know it's your your thing. Look, this year, especially in the the first half of 2022, was a major win for all the non-publicly traded companies. If you were like an independently owned watch brand or can sort of make your own decisions, the agility that you were working with gave you a lot of flexibility. There was a lot of things you could do, a lot of trends, uh, a lot of places you could be. Um, Everyone at, at you know, at, at every brand I know was just traveling around like crazy. And a lot of people had very good years because of the hard work and because of the opportunities that were available to them. There was a lot of interesting things happening. The corporate groups have to work on strategies of making big money. They can't just sell a couple watches here and there and sort of like, you know, make themselves feel happy. They're working on, you know, trying to figure out sustainable business models, which isn't going to happen in a constantly adjusting and shifting environment. So we're not going to see any real stability from the corporate brands until we actually have stability in the market. And that's that's not going to be a thing. But there are exceptions. I mean, look at LVMH, who has taken the time to really invest in a lot of the brands, 
a lot of interesting watches have come out of it. This was like massive, you know, year for Hublot because of the World Cup, which has just got them like insane amounts of visibility. And in all of those brands are also in modes of of changing their teams and reforming and things like that. But I think that as an entity, LVMH and Swatch brands did about as good as you could hope to do in a year like this as a, as, as a publicly traded company. Swatch Group has been a little bit more quiet. But I think also doing a fair number of impressive things. And again, there's no stability for them. They don't even have a trade show to show their watches, right? So it's hard for them to have a, you know, as you pointed out, like a really good relationship with the media if they don't even have planned times to visit with media. So we, we see a lot of that. I think that this was really the year for the watch retailer, right? A lot of them made a fair amount of money and have a chance now with some of the savings that they've accumulated in their reputations to grow and develop into a strong company into 2023 and beyond. Not all of them are going to do it. Many of them, as you said, now that they have to actually work for a living and like actually have to try hard, are not going to succeed. But enough of them will. And so I hope that the momentum from the money that they've made this year and, and you know sort of last year and, and into the beginning of next year is going to pay off into some really fantastic retailers that have strong you know, retail and in e-commerce presences, great relationships with the media themselves. That's my hopes. And, and, and I think that, that we'll, we'll see a little bit of that. And then from a collector's perspective, you know, there's so many more ways to just buy watches and sell watches at home. And there will be more. There will be more. So whereas some of the best deals, of course, are still in person, I think it's a great time to be a collector because there's just so much to buy out there right now, right? So many people have been incentivized, like list your watches, put your watches online, list them all. And there's there's a lot there. There might be too much choice, but I think there's actually a lot of stuff out there for the enterprising collector who uh, wants to find some interesting stuff. There are, there are definitely a lot of deals to be had right now. Yeah, that's what I think about that. Cool. I mean, there's no doubt that the likes of eBay and kind of watch shows in general uh, had, a, had a sterling year. And as you say, LVMH chairman Bernard Arnault has now passed. Elon Musk is the world's richest man, at least for the moment. So yeah, someone at LVMH Group's having a good time. If nothing else, David, what's your highlights of the year? Good and bad? I think uh, the world opening up a little bit and us being back at uh, these uh, trade shows this is, a, is the big thing for me uh, and something that I look forward uh, to next year. And I've se- I think we've seen a huge amount of new releases, which is also very exciting. You know, every other week there's a new watch brand, not even a new watch collection, but a new brand edits. So it's, it's a very vibrant 2022 and I have high hopes for 2023. As far as bad things are concerned, uh, you know, some of the brands are still a little bit too tame and a little bit too vintagey for my taste. So I hope that they will open up next year and we'll see more creativity from watches and the watch industry. Ariel, you had a visit through to Chopard in New York. You trailed us a few weeks ago and there were two watches and two reviews that have come out from that. The Chopard LUC Quattro Spirit. What is it with long names? I mean, come on. Chopard LUC Quattro Spirit 25th is it Spirit 25 Fifth Avenue? Is there an extra five in there? Is it like, is this the ear king of Chopard watches? There's too many fives. Yeah. LUC Quattro Spirit 25 Fifth Avenue edition jumping around. Well, Quattro means four, so they threw a four in there too. <laughs> That's true, yeah. yeah. Just counting down. We need a three. <laughs> Anyone for a one? Oh, there's a three in the image. So the press image has a three on it because it's a jump hour. There you and go. And then we also had the hands-on with the Chopard Alpine Eagle watch that I know you were particularly impressed with. So give us a lowdown on Chopard, one of my favorite brands. Yeah, Chopard is great. They've done so many beautiful things. And to think that they just opened up their sort of like serious manufacturer 25 years ago in Fleurier where they make LUC. Uh, and nearby they made Ferdinand Berthoud that David and I just can't stop thinking about. Like we like sometimes wake up and be like, I need a Berthoud in my true. life. And they're like 300 grand. But Me too. Me people, too. I, yeah. I, I have those dreams as well. But people say like, <laughs> if you had like several hundred thousand dollars, what Patek would you buy? I'm like, no, 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 no. I would not be interested in that. Like I'm going some crazy Berthoud and stuff like that. Every day, all day long. And 
they opened up this really beautiful showroom. It's a, it's a several story store boutique in New York on 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 Fifth Avenue. They've been there. They've already been in <laughs> in New York for like you know a long time since the seventies. But they were on Madison Avenue for like thirty years in two different locations, and now they have this like the the flagship boutique. And every time you hear a brand say flagship boutique, what that really means is you don't just buy watches here but you become indoctrinated to the experience and the world of Chopard. And one of the things that dawned upon me, which I think was really important, is compared to how I see Chopard in other retail settings, this is amazing. Because Chopard is one of those brands that for whatever reason, when you see them in third-party retailers, not all the time, but sometimes it's in such a low-rent way. And I don't know if either of you have seen this, but like you'll be at a multi, you know, multi-brand store who have Chopard, and like uh-huh. despite how nice the watches are, the Chopard area just like looks like hell. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's just it, it never quite lives up to the watches. So here I am in yeah. this place that looks, you know, it's on par with this anything as nice as you know Cartier or or or, or any of those high-end brands can do, and you see the watches and, and everything from the LUCs to just your standard Happy Sport, and you're like. That's the show part that I was thinking all along mm-hmm. rather than, you know, because I actually walked down the street to another store that had show part. And again, it looked like hell right there in New York. And I was like, OK, show part. Now I get why you wanted to have your own space. Still a pretty good value, you know, pretty down to earth. And I think what I like about show part and one of the things that they do, you know, better than maybe the competition is like service. They're not pushy. They treat you pretty well. Um, you know, they, they choose their employees in terms of like how just relaxed and, and friendly they can be and and i and i like that and i again maybe people have different experiences but i don't think you'll ever go into a show parts store and just be like really really pressured and and um and i think that's a nice thing you know that you can go in there and not feel like you're being ripped off and they just want to be your friend and send you a birthday card and if you're if you're looking to have a, a, an experience in luxury you want that. You don't want to just buy the watch or the earrings. You want to get the card. You want to get invited to the party. You want to get the bottle of, of wine from time to time or something like that. And, you know, and show part and brands like it do that well. So I, I see a lot of genuine happiness in the clients that have been doing business with them for years. And I, it's hard to do that in a corporately run environment, right? You, you really have to sort of be a family run company for that to be possible. All right, I'll stop talking about Chopard now. <laughs> I, I really like the jumper that they've released as part of the boutique opening. But I'm particularly fascinated by this full gold, multiple gold Alpine Eagle, which weighing in at $49,000 also strikes me as being a bit of a bargain in comparison to similar full gold watches. This looks just stunning. Is it as, is it as fine in real life, Ariel? It's, it's my favorite Alpine Eagle that I've ever seen. I like yellow gold a lot. I like that they did the gold on gold. You know, it's 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 a similar personality as maybe a similar gold on gold Royal Oak or a Rolex Day Date or something like that. But the Alpine Eagle just has a little bit of a different thing to it. It's about the same price, I think, these days as the Rolex, less expensive than the Audemars Piguet. It's a really nice watch. Like, I can see that type of watch being something that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you put on, still has that really... Uh, impressive element to it and it's also doesn't feel frivolous you know even though there are a lot of design elements on it it feels very like it's just a watch to read the time and that's sort of why the the rolex president has always done well even though it has decorative elements and the fluted bezel it still doesn't feel frivolous and i think that that you know, you know definitely goes into the longevity because again if you're going to spend 50 grand on a watch damn better want to you know think it's going to wear at least somewhat fashionably in the future. I think the most fascinating thing about this watch is the fact they've managed to color code the date wheel. You, you like that, huh? I like that. That, yeah. that that's, that's All that for 50 grand. <laughs> that's right. I just needed someone to color in the white plastic date wheel with a yellow highlighter no, just but, to make but look, it match. We've all talked but about just watches. Thought. It's like it cost them nothing. It costs them absolutely nothing to do that. It costs them a that. very little bit. It's not nothing. Uh, it's a very little bit. <laughs> Okay, it costs no more than a Seiko 5 to do that to the color wheel on a $50,000 watch. So why wouldn't you do it? I just think it's it just looks like a complete design. It looks like it's actually all been thought through. Like one individual designer, creative talent has, has put that together and everyone's signed off on it. It's not been done by committee. I just love it. Absolutely epic. David, your thoughts? Matching date wheels means luxury. I, I, I think it should be the new... It's, it's, I mean, it's been a bugbear of mine for a long time. You know, 
perpetual calendars that use a mix of hands and windows, but also non-match. I mean, why wouldn't you match a date wheel? I mean, why would you just not do that? It just makes no sense to me. Is there any watch in the world, David, where the date wheel not matching improves the watch or it actually matching makes it worse? I can't think of if any. If it's not matching the dial color, then it's matching the color of the of the indices. So what usually ha sometimes happens is that it's at three o'clock and you know all the indices or our markers are white and then the uh, the date window is also like that. But to answer your question, no, probably not. And I think you know the Alpine Eagle would look better without a date. It's such a dressy, elegant, cool watch. I understand it's for daily wear and a lot of people demand a date. At least that's what brands tell us. They are like, oh, we put on the date because people want a date. You know, people stop wanting the date. Just, just, just look for. A, just, <laughs> I'm sorry. Just ask for a clean dial. I like the date. I'm so. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. By the way, Rolex never, never color matches. It's always white. That's true. Is that right? A I'm Rolex pretty sure. Never, yeah. On the on the pre, on the day date at least, it's it's just true. white of every course. time. I've seen the it. No, no, the color match. They magnify it. <laughs> the color yeah, match it's, and it's, magnify it. And then they have the big, you know, the big day of the week. So it's this white, white. Yeah. I also think this is the best execution of the date at four thirty I've ever seen. It's pretty neat. Oh, it's it works really well. It works really well. The way that they've done the indices so that they're using only for uh, twelve, three, six, and nine the full. It would be better without a date, and that's true for every watch. I will. I would like a Rolex <laughs> just. <laughs> a just Rolex. Yeah, I, I think the idea of a Rolex just is a cracking idea, David. <laughs> Thank you. Good stuff. Well, that is us. Oh, go on, Errol. Oh, I just, there was an email from IWC, and I thought it was interesting talking about just uh -huh. weird things. And, and there's some mark that achieved, this is what they said achieved positive luxuries butterfly mark recertification for its incorporation of measurable and verified environmental, social, and <laughs> governance practices into their business operations. And I was like, okay, first of all, you know, the butterfly mark kind of sounds like those distasteful tattoos on on lower back uh <laughs> so i'm not sure if that's if that's something you want to do a press release about iwc just didn't seem like that kind of a brand but it it also goes into this fact of this insanity around sustainability i know that environmentalism and and social responsibility is a huge topic and highly important but it continues to kind of amuse me that brands put so much emphasis behind this. It, I, I guess it doesn't cost them very much to do. I don't feel like this is gaining them anything with consumers. Not really. Maybe when they're having dinner parties with things like, oh, we're very, very conscious. So maybe the CEO gets to look cool or something like that. But maybe one of you can explain why the brands like can't stop thinking about this type of stuff. I, I disagree with that assessment. I, I think it's it's 100% coming from, from the customer. When, when all the other luxury products or most of the other ones that you consume from the air, airplane you're flying to the to the bags you are, you know, you're buying yourself or the clothes you're wearing or the car interior that you are in, uh, every, everything starts to like slowly succumb to the notion of sustainability and, and transparency and all that. And, and you know, it's, it's not about doing this is so huge. It's about, you know, it's like you say, it's easy to do it and stand out from a host of other brands who are not doing it right so here's a person looking at a steel bracelet watch that 30 other brands are making and they are like oh well this is sustainable so i guess i will go for this and not for the other 29 you know so i think it could work to tip people uh, over when it comes to making a decision yeah i think there probably is a little bit of that i'd also like to suggest they've clearly got somebody new in marketing at iwc because there was also an instagram post ariel and i'll just let this hang in the air whereby you could use an NFT to unlock their Diamond Hands Club, which sounded like something entirely different. I don't uh, even know what that even means. I have, <laughs> yeah, no, I have no clue it, what that it, means. But, but, exactly. But so, you have to join uh, the Freemasons first. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And yeah, roll up your trouser leg and all the rest of it to claim your big pilot. Anyway, that is us for this week. It may also be us for this year. I don't know. We haven't decided if we're recording next week. So if it is, then have a great Christmas, everybody, and we'll see you in 2023. Thank you for sticking with us through this year of a blog to watch weekly. Any final closing thoughts, gentlemen? I'm down for another podcast this year. That's my closing thought. Okay, another podcast. <laughs> David, are you down for another Love podcast? It. Maybe in between the, the holidays, sure. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening all year round. Really appreciate it. Excellent. Thank, Thank you for joining us, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>